1: Welcome to Out to Lunch, the podcast where I talk to a wonderful guest while treating them to some great food. Today's guest joined me from LA for an early lunch while I indulged in a late dinner. And I can tell you that the food and conversation were well worth working around the time difference for. Before we get into it, I should let you know that our chat does include some pretty strong language and particular words that may offend some listeners, especially when my guest describes the anti-black racism experienced by her family. So if you're about to listen to this in the car with the toddlers, maybe don't save it for later listen to sophie ellis Bextor instead she never swears right rustling the takeaway boxes this week is a stand-up comedian writer television presenter and star of the hit netflix special to catch a dick i did mention the language it's the fabulous london hughes
0: and the one thing that like daytime porn and kids tv have in common is energy Did you need it for both <laughs> you need it for both
1: All the gags about London Calling. Hello. It's very lovely to meet you. You
0: too. You too. How are you?
1: I'm very well. I'm very well. I'm in cold Brixton, South Brixton. London.
0: Brixton. I love Brixton. Yeah. Oh, I'm jealous.
1: And now you are in Studio City. Um, uh, I know LA pretty well, so I know exactly where you are, and that's what helped me sort your food, which I am certain is going to be heading towards you very soon. So I have somebody walking towards you. Well, probably nobody walks in LA. They're driving towards you. <laughs> Um, You did Jimmy Fallon just two nights ago, didn't you?
0: If I'm really, truly honest with you, Jay, I've been celebrating a little bit too hard. I'm very happy
1: about it. (laughs) Well, I I like to think anybody, you know, this mostly gets a British audience, but anybody who doesn't know that Jimmy Fallon is one of the kings of late-night talk in LA. Yeah. And I think it's only right that Jimmy Fallon was basically my warm-up act. That's, (laughs) That's...
0: yeah, that's is. the way
1: it should be. That's
0: the way it
1: should be. I do a lot of research for I, I, you know, if I haven't met someone before, I do a lot of stuff, and obviously, I've watched your hour, and eight-minute special on Netflix. Yeah,
0: that's exactly how long it is. Well done it's for an being so precise. And yes, it and, is. and the
1: hour and eight minutes is, is pretty, I think, full on. It's pretty mm-hmm. sexy. It's mm-hmm. it's should we call it sex positive? Let's just go yes, with it. It's
0: definitely it, sex positive. It's called
1: cool to catch a dick, so it's a lot of there's a lot of dick talk in there. Yeah, but then I w- went back and I watched. The Eating with my ex, yeah. the episode that you did. Um, I think oh. you recorded it a couple of years ago yeah. with the the lovely boy Tommy, who mm-hmm. you were in a relationship with. Mm-hmm. At one point in that, you say to Tommy, uh, you talk about him going down. And you say you were the first one, Tommy, to to. Mm-hmm you you don't make it exactly clear what Tommy was the first person to have done for ah. you after your hour long special everywhere you go there's no point in me dancing around it so I, and what I found about that before I get the answer if you're going to give me the answer I have no I will, idea I of course of course um, was it actually suggested a rather more innocent less experienced person in quite recent history
0: yeah that's so true That's a good, that's actually really smart of you to pick that up because he did give me my first orgasm. That was a more innocent version of me that he was dating, 100%. Wasn't as sexually free as I am right now. And when I filmed that, that was like 2017, 2018. So yeah, again, I just get sexier year by year. Is is that what happens? (laughs) I think so. I think so. But I'm kind of
1: assuming there were loads of blokes before Tommy... Mate, I mean, you say rubbish? that, but no,
0: honestly. Oh right, okay. Like, I've only really had two boyfriends. They're the two guys that I've that my parents have met. That's when I call a boyfriend. If my parents haven't met you, you were just a fling. <laughs> um, even if you fell in love, doesn't matter. You were just a fling to me. But um, he met my my parents, so I would say he was, like, the first official guy. And then I was having sex before and using, like, vibrators and stuff, but I never had an orgasm. Maybe I thought... I don't know what I thought I was doing. <laughs> I was like, this this must be it. This must be the best it gets. But then, yeah, he gave me my first orgasm. I was like, oh, that's what I'm supposed to feel. And I was, like, 23, 22. So, yeah, and I lost my Virginia at 18, so... Yeah. And
1: if anybody is listening to this and and hasn't seen your special and oh thinks God. this is a pretty full on way to get into an interview.
0: Yeah, it's... the dick is well, I think it's Netflix's most x-rated special. Oh, that's my doorbell. I think so you I need think... to go and answer the door. Let me go. I will go uh, answer the door. Her name is Andrea. B R B. Okay. <laughs> I have food.
1: You have food. Yes, so I
0: do.
1: You have um I don't know um I don't know whether you're into sushi.
0: I love sushi. Okay. Thank God for that. So
1: Yay. not far from your apartment. In fact, literally, uh, I think round the corner in LA terms, it's literally half a mile away, yeah. is uh, an outpost of Sugarfish by Noah Zawa. Okay. Now, Noah Zawa is one of the great sushi chefs of LA. He was very famous when he had his small place. You'd walk in and he would do just whatever he wanted for you. Oh, nice. Your your job was to trust him. It was it was all very much about trusting him. Sugarfish is his, um his his wider brand to reach more people and I happen to know someone um who knew the boss who so you've just had a delivery from one of the senior management people at have Sugarfish. Right yeah. Do you, you know have. what?
0: I love Sugarfish. So I'm happy. All right, um, so if
1: you open that bag, we love we love unbagging on this uh I'm opening uh, the bag on this show. Yeah. And I'll tell you what you've got in there. You've Ooh. got the to go nozawa, trust me, which is uh edamame, tuna sashimi albacore sushi. Oh you've got a lot of stuff in there. But I also love threw in some tuna sashimi and some unagi and some large scallop and some nozawa style shrimp. Oh you can fill your fridge.
0: You know London. how to treat a girl, mate. I'll tell you that. Oh, yeah. We're not
1: called out to lunch for no reason. You
0: really know how to make a girl feel special because this looks top tier. Well,
1: while you're digging that around, I'm going to explain what I've got. So okay, originally, got? and I have to do a shout out on this, I was going to get something from Kirisu Omikaze. Um, I don't know how well you remember Brixton. I know you've only been there a year, but there's a, there's a little sushi place on Atlantic Road called Ichiban Sushi.
0: Yes, I've been there.
1: Right, well... It's a great place, but it was run, run by this Thai-Colombian couple. And okay. their son, Chris, who used to serve me when he was a kid, is now a sushi master who's gone to Tokyo and come back and done amazing things. Oh, and wow. he was going to bring me his, but like, sadly, he tested positive today, so he couldn't. I think oh, he's fine. Oh, my but...
0: God. So
1: instead, I've gone Yubi Sushi, which is a kind of apparently it's uh, London's first tema f- uh fusing sushi with Brazilian... Uh, <laughs> hand rolls. <laughs> so I have got some tuna maki and some salmon nigiri and some teriyaki. Oh, I
0: love salmon nigiri. You
1: did want to say that you haven't actually cooked anything since year nine food tech. Is that right?
0: Yeah, that's true. I don't, I don't cook, <laughs> honestly. Do you know what? I don't like doing things that I'm bad at and I'm super bad at cooking. And I found that out at a young age, which is great. So I just knew that I'll just take that with me into my adult life. I'm terrible. <laughs> I made a Cornish pasty that tasted like bricks <laughs> in, year, in Year 9 food tech, and I said, this isn't for me, you know?
1: I think that's so, that's fair enough. Does, does the apartment that you're in in Studio City, which for anybody who doesn't know LA is just a, on the edge of the valley over the over the hills, does it yeah. have a kitchen?
0: Yeah, it has a big kitchen, but I don't – it's all techno- technological. Yeah. It's all like like touch screen but I don't really know. It might as well be a closet. I'm just like...
1: So are you having the kind of conversation that we've just had to enable someone to get to your apartment with a lot of food delivery drivers?
0: No, I have a chef. So my chef delivers the food every week and and so I'm fine.
1: (laughs) You have a chef? (laughs) Yeah. You've said that one of the, the the interesting impacts on your life and your upbringing was your dad's adoptive grandparents.
0: Yes, I did say that. Yes, I did, the, Jay.
1: One of the first white couples to adopt a black child in Surrey?
0: Yes, in the whole of Surrey. They were the first, not one of. They changed the rules. So my grandma, Doreen, God rest her soul um, she had my uncle Lee and they, the doctors told her she couldn't have another child. And she currently worked at an adoption home anyway. So she was like surrounded by kids all the time. She loved kids. So she went into fostering. So she was fostering loads of kids. She lived in Crawley. Her and my granddad, Bill, God rest his soul, they were fostering loads of kids. And uh, it was against the law to foster black kids as a white family back in the, my dad's 61 so 61 years ago, and uh, my grandparents changed that. They went to court three or four times to get it done, and they fostered my dad, fell in love with my dad, and adopted him. They just gave him the best life ever, and he grew up to be an epic man because of his epic parents, and I'm an epic woman because of them. Of course. Yeah, I am so grateful, and it's so weird because we talk about how racist Britain is, and I genuinely believe Britain is racist, but... Once in a while, you get stories like this. Like my grandparents, for example, during the bill, they lived in Crawley. They've never left Crawley apart from to go to Eastbourne their whole life. They, <laughs> they, they're not, they're not cultural. They're not, you know. I wouldn't even yeah, say yeah. they're very much liberal. I mean, growing up, they still called me coloured, so they're not even politically correct. But they knew what was wrong and what was right. And my grandma's mum disowned her when she found out that she was adopting my dad. Because my grandma's mom, my great grandma, was a very racist woman. She was not into black people or brown people of any sort. And my grandma and granddad lost friends. They lost friends, they lost family members by adopting my dad. You know, uh, my grandma said that when she was at the adoption agency uh, in the foster place and she was talking about adopting my dad, the woman who worked there was like, oh, the nigger babies don't get (laughs) adopted. And my grandma was like, "Why?" And she was like, "They just, they just don't. They don't. They won't have a good life. No one, no one takes the nigger babies." And my grandma was like, "Well, I'm going to adopt this child." Uh, uh,
1: so. That could be the basis for a whole series by itself. But I'm going to focus on one thing, which is that <laughs> as part of that upbringing, your dad and therefore you was kind of schooled in the greats of post-war British comedy.
0: Yes. So my favourite show growing up was Dad's Army, and I grew up on Round the Horn on Radio Four. The thing is, when you're a kid, you copy. So at first, I would just laugh where my dad was laughing. And then by the time I got older, I was like, oh, this is, this is... I get it now. But yeah, I was laughing at it before I understood it.
1: To be fair, given how old you are, Round the Horn was on repeats by the time you were laughing at yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. So it wasn't the original. Mm-hmm. But you've also talked about laughing at your dad, laughing at Richard Pryor.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, my dad loved Richard Pryor. And he loves comedy in general. He loves British comedy, And in terms of American comedy, Richard Pryor is the only guy that he really talks about. And so when I did my special, if you watch my special, To Catch a Dick, you'll see me calling myself female Richard Pryor. And that's only because Richard Pryor was so honest with his storytelling and what he said about his life. And everything I talk about in To Catch a Dick is true. And I guess I get that from Richard. So... That's why I call myself Primo- see <laughs> my Richard Pryor. So yeah, have you had any
1: kickback on that?
0: No, I've actually had the opposite. People are like, "Yes, she is." Oh, well, <laughs> so yeah, no, no kickback. People have agreed, uh, So, which was great. So, was comedy?
1: <laughs> did you early on? Do you think I want to be a comedian? Did you think I want to be on no. telly, or I want to be famous? I mean, no. what, what was the plan? What was the?
0: I want to be on telly. I want to be famous. The plan was to basically get to America because when. Um, I was a kid, I was a TV fiend. The TV was my best friend. I'd come in from school and it was me and television until 7 p.m. and then I had to have supper. But at the time, I never saw black people on TV. I grew up in the 90s. You know, I want to be in this TV box, but no one looks like me in this TV box. And then my mum got cable, and that's when I saw American programs and I saw black people of every shape and size. So, From a very young age, I knew that if I wanted to get in the television, I'd have to go to America to do it. And I remember trying to get an agent at like eleven, and I went in the yellow pages and I looked up (laughs) estate agents because it said agent in it, and I genuinely like called up an estate agent uh, looking for representation because I didn't know that it it wasn't the same thing.
1: (laughs) And and they tried to sell you a a two up two two down in North, yeah, exactly.
0: So I had all that, and I remember having a conversation with my mom. Because I saw that Britney Spears had made it at 12 and she was on the Mickey Mouse Club in America at 12 and I hadn't been on anything and I was 12 and a half and I basically had a conversation like, you need to pull your finger out because I'm past it. Over yeah, the hill. I'm past it. So, yeah. Amazing
1: you've got to where you are, frankly, with that, with that slow start of yours. <laughs> um.
0: But then I genuinely didn't think I could do stand-up because what stand-up comics, apart from Lenny Henry, were on television? So for me as a kid, I was like... I can't be a stand-up, cause stand-ups are white men. This so representation is so important. Um, I'm glad I am one now.
1: Oh no, I'm pleased too. Which, which bits of the sushi have you got to? Cause I'm on um, I'm
0: eating the, currently I've had all the tuna and now I'm into these kind of shrimp. I don't even know what they are, but they're tasty as hell.
1: The Nazawa well, style shrimp.
0: Yeah, it's top tier.
1: What's your first job out the box?
0: While I was at uni, I was working in TGI Fridays.
1: A a fine establishment in many ways.
0: I went to a comedy club because I got the sack from TGI Fridays. I was supposed to work that Sunday. And because I got the sack, my friends took me to a comedy club to cheer me up. And that's when I realized I could do stand-up comedy.
1: Why was it that being in the audience at comedy made you think, I can do this?
0: So back then, there used to be, there still is, the black comedy circuit and the mainstream comedy circuit. And um, a kind of subdivision of the black comedy circuit was this new place called The Sunday Show, where it was run by young black promoters and it had young black comedic talent. And they would always bring in the greats in black comedy, like Richard Blackwood would come in and do, do a set. But mainly it was new young black comics and I'd never seen anything like it a realisation that their kind of stand up and the the reaction to the crowd was something that I had kind of been doing my whole life without noticing. Cause I was always a joker in school. I was bullied a lot in school and I used to like joke and be silly to make the bullies not beat me up or bully me. Cause they can't bully you if they're laughing. So I was like the joker and class clown and some of the stuff they were saying, well, reminded me of conversations I'd had with my friends. That Monday I started writing some stuff, just like, just funny anecdotes, stories, funny stories, stories I've told before that I know made people laugh, little things like that. And I was like practicing it in my room and stuff. And then randomly, by chance, my university was having a talent show and I can dance. Anyone who knows me before comedy would assume that my career would have been a back end dancer or a dancer of some sort because I used to do street dancing, um, and I used to do Kathak style Indian dancing. I did ballet, tap, jazz, um, and modern. Threat. Yeah, so like everyone was like she can dance, and one of the the organizers of the event asked me to dance at the talent show, and I asked if I could do stand up as well, and they were like what. And I was like, yeah, if I do a dance in the first half, can I come back in the second half and just do like five minutes of stand up? And they were like, okay, if you want, are you funny? And I was like, I think I am, I think I think I could do this. I went on Facebook and tracked down one of the comedians who I'd seen at, this, at the Sunday show and asked him for advice. And he actually ended up saying, I'll come and watch you. So he came. So my first ever show of stand-up was in front of like a thousand students at uh, Kingston University's Got Talent. And uh, I invited a comedian to come and watch me. And I absolutely stormed it. And when I came off stage, he grabbed me in a headlock and was like, (laughs) you're fucking funny. I'm getting you a spot at the Sunday show. And so that Sunday I had my first paid gig performing my set that I'd just written that Monday at the Sunday show. So a week after being fired from TGI Fridays, that next Sunday, I was a comedian. A paid that's absurd.
1: A paid comedian, I, mean, I know. But th- the thing, you know, looking at your career and everything you've done, what strikes me about you is that all the way through that, you would have thought to yourself, yeah, and quite right too, that's exactly as it should be.
0: I know, it's true. <laughs> and nothing surprises me. I don't know what it is, right? But because I'm such a TV connoisseur, I'm a fan of triple threats like... Bruce Forsyth and Cilla Black and even Michael yeah. Ma- Barrymore sang and danced and was yeah, yeah. funny. And so I'm like modeling myself on those people as a person. So I made sure, you know, I could do all of those things. And I genuinely just assumed that if you were talented and hardworking and a nice person, then you would get on television. So I made sure I was all those things. In 2009, I won the Funny Women Awards and I'd been doing standup for like three months when I won. And I remember like winning it and then coming off stage and being interviewed for like the Evening Standard. And they were like, so what's next? And in my head, I was like, well, I've won this award. I've been doing standup for three months. I'm clearly good. I've beat hundreds of pro- like professional comics. <laughs> so I'm I'm then now going to work even harder and then I'll get my own TV show. Then I'll star in movies. I'll release a book. And that, like in the interview, I'm literally talking like that. Like this is the yeah. plan. and." Yeah, the reality slapped me around the face. I was like, nah, that's not how it works, honey. And then I just kind of like watched people less talented than myself get very far. And I was like, well, if they can
1: make it. What particular quality do you think those people had? Do you know what? I'm getting you to say Do you know
0: what? (laughs) I'll say it. I don't care. Do you know what it is? Britain's got a problem with um, talent because I don't know what happened or what changed, but now you just have to have gone on a reality show and like you could be on Gogglebox and then be a star. You could be on Made in Chelsea or Towie or you could have done that thing on Love Island and then now you're hosting TV.
1: How did you get the fully clothed, it has to be said, gig Mm -hmm. on Babe Station?
0: I saw an audition for a TV host uh, to present, like live TV presenting. And I got the job, and then I found out it was Babe Station. <laughs> so,
1: did, you, did you hesitate at all? No, or did not you at all. That-
0: it was £20 an hour. I was fully clothed. I was on the back end of Sky, like the, the darkest part of Sky. The, the,
1: the dusty recesses <laughs> yes, of the cable Exactly. Cable
0: and it was live, like live TV, you know? And I loved every second of it. Every second What were of the it.
1: other women like?
0: Do you know what?
1: The ones who, who were less clothed?
0: It was actually <laughs> very interesting because... I'd finish my shift at like 11 and I'd leave and then like peaches or diamonds would come in and they're smelling of like baby lotion. And like one of the times I saw this girl like absolutely naked, fingering herself and like making like all, all noises to the camera. And then as soon as like they went on a break, she rang her son and was like, there's chicken nuggets in the fridge. And it was just, there was, <laughs> it was just so weird. like. It, was, it just let me know that, yeah, that's just a job. Like it's not-
1: So you get a job on CBBC. Did they yeah. ever, was it on your CV, the uh, live no. experience with uh, Babe Station?
0: No, but they knew, they did know. So after I won the Funny Women Awards, I guess the clip of me performing that set, it's available on YouTube, it's just me at the comedy store. And it's like such a fiery set and I have loads of energy. And the one thing that like daytime porn and kids TV have in common is energy. Did you need it for both. <laughs> you need it for both. So, um, yeah, I auditioned for CBBC. To be honest, it was kind of a dream of mine because the first black British person I really saw and resonated on TV was Angelica Bell. And she used to present CBBC when I was a kid. And I remember thinking, how did she do that? Like, how did she get there? Like, what did she do? And I found out that she lived in Kingston and she studied broadcast journalism at university and I remember thinking okay I'm going to go to Kingston University and I'm going to study broadcast journalism so I can get that job I didn't end up studying that I ended up studying television studies but essentially she was like the blueprint to how to get on television for me I'm the person where I'm like if I want to do something I watch what someone else did and try and copy it because that's the only way I know how whether it's riding a bike or learning to dance or whatever so and it was like Wow, I did it. And I was only 21.
1: But the the main thing I got when I was reading all this stuff and looking at all this stuff was actually a growing sense of fury as yeah. eight different TV project ideas, one including Whoopi Goldberg.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and at the end of this, I, I, we'll come back to that, but my main response was, London, I don't fucking blame you for being in LA. And, we've, <laughs> uh, and I've done the same. Well, thanks. Uh, in, 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 the, in if that were a situation I found myself in. Tell me about the Whoopi Goldberg project.
0: Okay. I can't even tell the story about crying. So if I cry, I'm very sorry. But basically it was like 2018 and I was actually the, the most famous I ever was at the time. I'd just done Celebs Go Day In. I'd done Mock the Week. I'd done all the, every single ITV2 game show you could think of. And so people were like interested in entertainment vehicles for me. And the company approached me and was like, What would your dream entertainment show be? And I was like, I see there's a lack of women on travel shows in this country. I feel like male comics get to travel all over the place with their moms, with their friends, with their sons. At the end of the day, I was just like, I feel like women should be allowed to to leave the country too, not just to sell houses, to actually (laughs) actually do comedy abroad and do travel shows. And so I came up with this show idea called Looking for Whoopi, where I would go around America with Whoopi Goldberg, basically, because I want to be as big as her. I want to be Britain's answer to Whoopi Goldberg. Whoopi to me is the biggest and the best black female comedy sensation. Like Whoopi in her prime was just huge. Sister Act to me doesn't even seem like a black film, even though it's 95% black. <laughs> like Sister Act 2. She it was just, it's just she just transcended colour. She was just, for me, the epitome of what, uh, of the career I wanted. And so I just told this production company, I would love to do a show with Whoopi Goldberg. Like you would say, I would love to do a show with Beyonce. I didn't think it could actually happen, but I was just saying, you know, my dream show. And this company reached out to Whoopi Goldberg, sent out my materials, and then Whoopi said yes. The fact that we had the show, We had the talent before the show was even finished. Like we just, we had Whoopi on board. And like, she loved the idea of me coming to America and her training me to like be a star. So I was like, this is amazing. And I was crying, crying, crying when she said she'd be part of the show. And uh, we had Whoopi. You must
1: have assumed it was a shoe-in as well. Of
0: course, it's Whoopi Goldberg. She's an EGOT winner. Like she's, Mm. she's a queen. Like she's, she's, who's going to turn down a show of Whoopi Goldberg? Like it's just not going to happen. Uh... No TV channel wanted it, like no one. We pitched it to everyone and they all said no. We even had Whoopi in the trailer. Like we made a little teaser, five minute sizzle reel with Whoopi and I in it. And uh, (laughs) it was just like, oh God, this is so crazy. I don't know, I feel like I maybe need to get over this, but it was just sad for me because that was the moment I knew I had to leave because I said to myself, you know, if I could have told seven-year-old me that that woman from Sister Act was going to agree to do a show with me, she wouldn't believe it. But then also she wouldn't believe that that nobody would want to make that show. Make that show. And there's so many, like, young, impressionable Black girls like myself who grew up watching television and not seeing themselves. So the opportunity to have a show with an icon like her on British television and then have no-one want it... Um, it just let me know that I had to leave. So yeah, it was like that was
1: You're still you're still and fully entitled. Yeah. <laughs> L- furious.
0: Yeah, yeah I'm you? really sad because I don't want to have to be in America right now. Like I've left my friends and family to follow my dream and it worked. But you know, I think everyone who leaves, every black or brown talent that leaves and has success in the US, we kind of wish we didn't have to. I mean, it's great. The money's amazing. <laughs> and I'm living my best life. <laughs> I'm rich than I've ever been in my life. But it's just it's just sad because, like, essentially, I grew up seeing Black people on TV in America all the time. What I didn't grow up is seeing me. And I still can't see me because they didn't let me on TV in the UK. So, yeah. But I'm coming back. I have big plans. I am going to make something Essentially, for young black women and um, to see themselves in uh, funny black girls all over the country to be like, yeah, I could be like London Hughes, and that's essentially what I'm doing. But it was just a, it was just a hard pill to swallow when y- you find out. In well, 20- as, I, as yeah. I say,
1: as I read my way through it, I just got angrier and angrier. <laughs> it was kind of like, I totally understand why I'm sitting in a. I'm sitting in my office at eight thirty or nine o'clock, as it is on a on a you know a, a wet night because yeah. you're in LA and that's exactly where you should be. <laughs> Thank um, you. So the, the special that you've done, which you shot outside, all, the audience is yeah. all masked. Did they literally all get tested before? There was
0: no COVID in sight at my special, but it was great. It was weird watching people watch me do stand up and laugh, but you can't see their mouths. So, like, (laughs) I luckily there was microphones in their tables that linked up to the stage. So whenever they laughed, it got projected onto the stage so I could hear that they were enjoying it. But I couldn't see them smiling or laughing at all. (laughs) It was very weird.
1: So, listen, the the material's full on. It is what it says it is. You pretty much start off by calling your 94-year-old Jamaican grandma a hoe because she had five kids by five different men. So, obviously, she was shagging for her life. Yeah. Uh, um you bust the black cock myth I don't want to give away all the all the yeah. gags uh you um talk about shagging Anthony Joshua but you don't name him but we all know it's him. <laughs>
0: I don't know well,
1: what you're talking about. You, Alright, you say you had sex with, with a boxer who became much more famous than you are and won gold at 2012. And there's only two choices. It's either him or Nicola Adams. And I don't <laughs> think it's Nicola Adams. Could be. Could be. But...
0: I would
1: definitely smash Nicola Adams. When <laughs> so, I mean, you said, you know, the show's one of the most X-rated that yeah. Netflix has ever put out. Was there any element of you pushing Mm -hmm. at the boundary saying, I want to do this, I want to do this, I want to do this. And the production company and the commissioners saying, no, you can't. Or was it just be you, do what you want to be?
0: Yeah, literally Netflix have been, it's been such a breath of fresh air being employed by Netflix because they are literally just on the London Hughes train. And I just felt like before in the UK, they would tell me, "I no, like, I remember I used I used to audition for 8 Out of 10 Cats and I, um, you have to audition for it. I've auditioned for it three or four times and every time, even though I was funny, the feedback would always be, oh, we just don't think our audience would quite get her. But if she becomes famous in her own right, she's more than welcome on the show. And Netflix were like, no, you be you. Like, our audience will love you for you. And you're a star. So just do whatever you want to
1: do. So you've been busy while you've been there. I mean, yeah. You've not just been sat in that lovely apartment waiting for the, your private chef to turn up. <laughs> for the you week. know, I,
0: I can't do it. I can't do waiting. I think I had so many rejections in the UK that after every rejection, I had to think of something new. So my brain's trained to never just like get comfortable or wait. So whilst there was a pandemic and I physically couldn't do anything, I got history of swear words in a pandemic. I got the the, the after-party show in a pandemic. And then I wrote a movie and sold it in the pandemic. And I'm You've sold just, a movie script? Yeah, so I've got a movie from the Makers of Girls trip. Um, hang, and hang on, hang
1: on. Just stop one second. You wrote this script since arriving in LA in February?
0: Yeah.
1: And you've sold it... Yeah, universal.
0: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, fuck
1: me. You you don't stop, do you?
0: No, I can't stop. But this is a good thing. The one thing I thank the British comedy and entertainment industry for is they make me work like I'm not talented. (laughs) I I have the work ethic of a very untalented person. (laughs) So instead of just some people with talent would be like, oh, I have talent and I have all these jobs. So I'm just going to, you know, wait for more to come in because my talent is there. But Britain made me go, it doesn't matter if you have talent, you still got to work. So I just <laughs> always know how to work.
1: There's a very simple, blunt question. Just how racist is the British television establishment?
0: Um, Very. And the craziest thing is it's racist in... The most polite way. (laughs) The Britain entertainment industry is politely racist. So, like, Americans openly racist, like, they will call you an N word to your face. They will shoot you because you're black. They will, you know, America is racist. It's not a taboo statement. Britain is politely racist. It's like racist behind closed doors. It won't tell you to your face that you're anything but an amazing person, but. The people that make the decisions don't look like you. And the people that make the decisions don't want to make decisions involving people that look like you. And so if you're black and brown or just non-white, basically, it's kind of like, where can you go from it? Because the people making the decisions don't look like you. And they're going to give the jobs to the people that look like them. And until the people making the decisions are diverse, television won't be diverse. So I guess, yes, it is. It's sad though. I'm trying to change it. I I genuinely think that people like myself are in such a great position because we now have the power to change it. So my next project, my next movie, will have Black British people in it because, and those Black British people might be Black British people that never got, never had jobs on television because the people that decide to make the shows aren't Black or British. But that's what I plan to do. Like everything is to bring awareness to. To the British comedy industry And I feel like when you Google British comics Or when you think of When the world thinks of British comedy They predominantly think of white men And I just want to give them Something else to think about, you know
1: London Hughes That is a brilliant note On which I can say Thank you very much For staying in (laughs) for lunch with me Um, It's been brilliant Thanks for having me
0: Sorry for crying
1: (laughs) Oh, don't apologise for that That's podcast gold Um... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well look it was men yeah. and i you know oh, yeah. as I said I don't blame you I absolutely don't blame you for being that emotional about it because it seems entirely right don't. but I'm delighted it's going so bloody well thank you um yeah. and I hope um the sushi keeps you going oh it will for a good I don't while. have to
0: cook and I can't cook and I won't cook because I have a chef but still <laughs> I don't have to cook so thank <laughs> you <laughs>
1: I am very glad that London will be enjoying her sushi for dinner as well. Um, she had a hand-delivered takeaway from Sugarfish by Sushi Nazawa, with sites all over LA and New York. They deliver and do takeaway. And I had a bunch of maki rolls and nigiri from Yubi Sushi. And if um, that wasn't enough, you can find a heap more episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, and if you could give us a five-star review and share us, we would be very, very happy indeed. Out to Lunch is a Something Else in Jay Rayner production. The music was written, arranged and performed by me, Jay Rayner and Robert Rickenberg. The sound engineer was Josh Gibbs. The assistant producer was Millie Chu. The producer was Hannah Newton and the executive producer is Darby Dorris. Additional production is from Steve Ackerman. Next time, I'll be joined for lunch by the comedian, writer and actor, Tom Allen.
0: It wasn't that I wanted to come out because I was so scared of that. It felt like all I wanted to do was just, have, just disappear really. And so actually, I loved dressing up in formal clothing. I liked old-fashioned clothing. I, I liked the idea of serving dinner. And suddenly
1: it occurred to me, I know what I should be doing with my life. I should be a butler.